0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So, 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Every, for everything God created by God, is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Kent Hughes once said, Thousands today change what they believe to accommodate their moral behavior. On the other hand, thousands more take up false doctrine and then apostatize in their actions. So I want to welcome you back to our series titled "First Timothy: God's Plan for the Church and Life." And in this series, we've been taking an up-close biblical look at the theology and the doctrines of the church. What is the church, right? and what is the church for? And I think when I when I think about the church, one of the things that strikes me is the church of the living God is incredibly powerful, but also very quite peculiar institution. What I mean by this is, if you think about it, it was ordained and it is empowered today by God Himself. The church is being built by God Himself, and yet it is made up of and stewarded by fallible human beings. The church is God's church, and it's to be what God calls it to be, and it's to do what God calls it to do, and yet God has left His church in the hands who are known for making a mess of things, which makes history the history of the church quite complex and interesting and even conflicting at times. Because throughout history, we have seen the church do many wonderful things, like build hospitals and orphanages. By the way, those are, those are inventions of the church. The church has labored to end slavery all over the world. The church has been known to stand up for those who have no voice of their own. The church has been known to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and to weep with those who weep. The church has been the instrument that God is using to give hope to those who have none. But we've also seen that the church throughout history has been marked by scandal and hypocrisy, moral failure of its leaders, and even at times, in periods of times, abandonment of the gospel itself. The church history that we think back on, if we're honest, is not as neat and tidy as we would presuppose. But yet God is in control and we see His hand throughout history leading and directing and building up the church. In fact, that's the only reason, the only plausible reason for it still to exist is because of the power of God Himself. In that, what I've observed with the church is there are four constants. Now, there are probably more, but there are four that stick out to me. Four constants that have been been part of the church that we can observe from the very beginning. And they are, number one, the gospel is the power to save those who believe. That's what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. The gospel is the power to bring salvation to the lost. Not fancy preaching. Not compelling storytelling. Not great organizational skills. Not beautifully painted walls. Not beautiful constructed buildings. Not fancy community outreach and engagement programs. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save. And, And wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, those who hear the gospel and whose hearts have been made ready by the Holy Spirit will receive the gospel and be saved. Our job is always to be faithful to the task at hand, which is to sow the seed, love the people, pray that God changes their heart and never give up. But we ourselves aren't the power to save, it's the gospel. right? And and the, and the church has been the guardian and the proclaimer of that gospel from the very beginning. Number two, there is not a force in the world that is powerful enough to stop God's church. There's nothing in the world that can hold the church back that is man-made. There's not a government powerful enough. Just look what's happened in China. They're burning churches down and persecuting Christians and hauling them off to, to jail. And the church continues to grow. There's not an organization crafty enough to destroy the church. And even the Bible says not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Through the darkest hours of persecution, the church has continued to not only exist, but thrive and to grow and flourish. There is nothing in the world that can stop the church. And the reason for that is because God is the one who is behind it. Those are the positive things. The gospel is the power of God and nothing can stop the church. But then there's the negatives related to mankind. And that is, there have have been and always there have been and will always continue to be, as long as we are here on this earth, false converts in the church who will eventually fall away. Right? From the very beginning, there have been people who have professed a faith in Christ who did not truly come to faith in Christ. And we know that. Right? We know that they've fallen away. You want an example of that from the very beginning? Think of Judas. Not, not anybody suspected him. Not anyone believed that he was an unbeliever except Jesus, of course. Peter, the leader of the church, didn't see it coming. He was a false convert. There have been false converts from the beginning of the church, and it continues to be to this day. And then fourth, there have been and will continue to be false teachers who infiltrate the church and lead those people astray. There are those who seem to be legitimate leaders and teachers who will eventually prove to be false prophets and false teachers, and they will lead many people away from the faith. Those are really the four constants that that I have seen in the church. We see this supernatural organization that's moving forward and doing great things, and and in God's unfolding plan of redemption, at the same time, we see these things the church has had to contend with. In fact, as long as there's been a church, there have been false teachers who have been a threat to the church and the members of the church from the beginning all the way up till right now. In fact, Jesus Himself said, He warned of this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus said false teachers will come pretend to be teachers of the truth, and they will look like the sheep, but inwardly they are out to bring destruction, which is what we see all over the New Testament. This pushing back against false teaching and false teachers. Galatians uh, chapter 1, Paul writes to the, the churches there who had allowed false teachers to come in and preach a perverted gospel uh, he says this, he says, I'm astonished. The, the wording here in Greek is actually very powerful. It's a rebuke. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel now that, now that there is no other one, but there is, are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed or damned. The church in Galatia had fallen prey to a Jewish false teaching. And they taught this, that basically only God's people will be saved, which is true. Only God's people do get saved. But the thing that they built off of that was they taught that only the Jews are God's people, which is false. False. God's people are all of those people throughout history who have faith, had faith in the Messiah. The Old Testament believers look forward to the Messiah. We look back upon him in history. And the result of that false teaching then that happened in Galatia is people began to believe that faith in Christ was not enough. They had to become Jewish and obey the law, and the men had to go through a very uncomfortable surgery. That you had to do that to be saved. And so Paul writes this letter to rebuke them and correct this error. By the way, it's one of the most clear pictures and expositions of the doctrine of grace in the entire Bible. Which, by the way, is not unlike the letter to Timothy as well, right? Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to do what? To fix the church in Ephesus that had gone astray. Because it allowed unqualified leaders to take over teaching in the, uh, in the church. And they were beginning to teach false doctrines that were leading people to, to astray. And it was leading to all kinds of behavioral issues in the church. And so Paul commissioned Timothy to go over there and put an end to the false teaching and discipline the false teachers. But it doesn't, but it doesn't end there. Because not only after that, after, not long after that actually, the Gnostic heresy that taught that Jesus Christ didn't actually physically raise from the dead began to surface and really become very popular in um, the early church. Gnosticism was this dualistic philosophy that all of the material world is bad and all the spiritual is good. Therefore, Jesus couldn't possibly have risen physically because his body was a bad thing. Paul, by the way, and John actually emphasized the reality of Christ's physical resurrection because that was beginning to show its head then. Then you have the Aaron heresy, right? The Arian heresy is where they deny the divinity of Christ, that Jesus somehow is a created being. This has led to the Council of Nicaea, by the way, also led to the real St. Nicholas punching somebody in the, in the nose who was a heretic. Yep. <laughs> so what would, what would uh, a Christian do? Punching someone in the face is not out of the... Out of, no, I'm just kidding. The, the church actually frowns on that, okay, just, just so you know. All right. But it did happen. But it was from there that we received the Nicene Creed that defines Christ's divinity. And then there's the Marcian heresy, where Marcian believed that, that only certain parts of the Bible are true. And he rejected the other ones because he had in his mind that the New Testament God and the Old Testament God were two different gods. Right? The New Testament God was loving and the Old Testament God was hateful. So he cut out all the Old Testament and really cut out all of the New Testament that had anything to do with, with Judaism. And he was left with parts of Luke and the, the letters of Paul. Right? That's the Marcion heresy. And then you have the modalists who deny the persons of the Trinity. That, yeah, they believe in, in the one God, but they deny that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct. And then the Pelagians who deny original sin and, and that mankind somehow is capable on his own to attain moral perfection without the grace of God. By the way, that's a heresy that pops up over and over again. It just comes under different names. And then we have the veneration of Mary and her immaculate conception, supposing that she was born herself sinless, which there's no warrant for that at all. Right? And then you have purgatory and the treasury of merit, that somehow, way, that there's enough excess merit from some people that you can borrow from that to get yourself into heaven. And then more recently, we have the false teaching that Jesus is the literal spirit brother of Satan, or Jesus being the, the archangel Michael, the, the first created being. All the way up to today, we have the prosperity gospel that promises that if you'll just have enough faith, you can have however much money you want, and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy for the rest of your life. The point I'm trying to make here is false teachers and false teachings have been an issue in the church that the church has had to contend with from the very beginning. And that is, by the way, a reoccurring theme in this letter. In fact, that's what this particular text is about. It's about... False converts who fall away from the faith because of false teachers and false teachings. This is really a short exposition on how false converts get led away by false teachers. So again, turn with me to 1 Timothy, and let us begin to look at verse 1. And the first thing I want you to notice, and we're not going to read the whole verse quite yet. I want you to notice the first word of the first verse. And it is the word now. And the reason why I point this out is because even though the English Standard Version translate the Greek word that's used here as now, the New American Standard Bible, I think, translates it correctly by translating it as but. I think it's a better rendering. Because the Greek word can mean now, but it also can mean but or on the other hand. And what we need to realize is the Greek grammar in this particular situation, the word is actually a conjunction. And what that means for us, it's, it's, it's a word that connects two ideas together. Like, you know, who remembers like conjunction, junction on Saturday morning, right? Okay. Words like and, right? Or, or but, or therefore are conjunctions, right? And so what we know from the grammar is this word is a conjunction. And so, and so this word is better expressed as but or on the other hand, right? Because it actually helps us to really unpack the idea that Paul's laying out here. Now, why am I already talking to you guys about Greek grammar this morning? You're like, it's too hot for this, bud. Right? Well, it's because what we need to understand is the text that we are in today logically is connected with what we just covered last week. These things go together. The text that we did before is the context of today's text. Remember, Paul said, I'm telling you these things so that you may know how people ought to behave in church, the family of God, right, God's church, which, by the way, is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And then he says, great, we confess, right, is the gospel. And then he recites a creedal formula in the form of a hymn. And, and Paul is saying that the church is the instrument that God is using to protect and to proclaim the gospel and the truth of the gospel for the world. The church is also stabilized by our confession of the gospel and holding on to Orthodox doctrine, the preaching and teaching of that truth. And then he says, in light of that, but, or on the other hand, some people are going to depart from the faith and follow after false teachers. The church is the protector and proclaimer of the truth of the gospel and people ought to behave like it, but some people, are going to depart from the church. They're going to depart from the faith. You see, Paul issues a declaration of what the church is and what, and, and what it is to be, and that is to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And then he contrasts that with a warning that there will be those, in spite of this, in spite of that attention to detail, there will be those who will fall away into error. It will happen. That's the context of this passage. We see this as a warning. Paul says that even though the church is the pillar of the foundation of the truth, some people will leave the truth for a lie. There will be people that are among you who will leave the truth for a lie. And in this section, he's going to explain exactly how that can happen. This is a stern warning for the church. It's a stern warning for those in the church. Which, by the way, is made clear by what Paul says next. He says, now, or but, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. And notice this expression, the Spirit expressly says. That should immediately cause you to sit up and take notice because Paul doesn't say that very often. It's clear from the context, by the way, in the grammar that Paul is referring to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Not just some spirit, not just his spirit, but the spirit. He uses the definite article there, making it clear that he's talking about God the Holy Spirit, which makes sense because God is an apostle who was commissioned by God and he received divine revelation from God the Holy Spirit and wrote that down. That's why you have so much in the New Testament, is because of the Spirit speaking to Paul. But notice he mentions here that the Spirit... Expressly, explicitly is another way to say that. Says again, that language ought to make us like really pick up our ears and pay attention. This is an unusual expression for Paul because even though his teaching is inspired by God and the Holy Spirit, he doesn't usually say the Holy Spirit really, really says this, expressly says something. Because what this tells us is that Paul. Is talking about is really critical. He's making a point about the urgency of this warning. He says the church is the pillar and the grounds of the truth, and the Holy Spirit is expressly, it is explicitly saying that people will, in spite of this, fall away or depart from the faith. This text is a serious warning about false converts, about false teachers, and about false teaching. And I mention this because. Many of us simply, let's just be honest, many of us just struggle with this subject. Many of us just don't want to talk about these things. We don't want to talk about false teachers. We don't want to talk about false teachings or false converse. Why can't we just all get along? Right? We don't want to hear about it. Many people want to talk about and hear about only the positive things like, you know, love and, and unity and grace, which we should talk about those things. They are good, But they're like, why can't we just talk about doing good things and doing good deeds and serving people? Why can't we just talk about the unity of the church? Why can't we just talk about loving our neighbor? Why can't we just talk about just being nice? Again, all good, positive things. And we should talk about those things in their own time. But we also need to talk about the difficult things like false converts and false teaching and false doctrine, especially when the text itself brings it up.
1: Why do we need to talk about these things? It's because these texts are here for a reason. The text is here for a reason, and not just simply just to make us uncomfortable. This
0: is an urgent warning. The Spirit expressly says, and notice this warning is not limited, right? It's not a limited warning to just Timothy at his own time. It's not, hey, Timothy, here's what's coming up for you next week. This is not a limited time warning. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Paul says, in later times, some will leave the faith. You see, this is a universal warning for all of the church. A warning for Timothy then, and a warning for us in later times. This is a warning for all people in all churches in all times. That's why it's important. Now, the term here, later times, is somewhat of an obscure word, because it can mean later times, like a little bit later. It can also mean later times like a whole lot later. And it can also mean later times as in the last times or the end times. This word has a broad range of meaning. And I think that this this broad range of meaning can give us broad application. Right? That that what Paul is talking about is all of that.
1: The short term, the long term, and finally the end itself. The problem for us especially in the American church, is the fact that we have a tendency
0: in in modern American evangelicalism because of certain end times assumptions, is we take that, that idea and we translate that term as to mean only the end times. And as a result, many people will say that this, you know, in the end times, some people will depart, depart from the, the faith. In the end times, there'll be a falling away from the church. And what will happen is people will look around and see that people are indeed falling away from the church. And what will they say is like, "Look, we're in the end times. See? That's evidence we're in the end times. We're living in the last moments because, look, people are falling away from the church, which, by the way, is really a huge distraction for the church. And Christians, because some people get so focused on the end. And what all that might mean is they forget to live here and now, sharing the gospel and our hope in Christ. Because I want you to hear me, church. And and it's not my intentions to step on toes. But I want to be really, really clear. The gospel is not, you better get saved, otherwise you might be left behind. That is not the gospel. The gospel is every one of you are going to meet God one way or the other, whether it is Him coming back or by death. Everyone will stand before Him and He's going to judge you according to His righteous, perfect standard. And if you were in your sin, He will give you exactly what you deserve, which is His wrath and eternity in hell. And every tribulation you face on earth will seem like a walk in the park by comparison. And your only hope is to repent and believe the gospel. And not so that you just can escape some momentary tribulation on earth, but escape the wrath of God that will come to all who are in their sins without Christ. The gospel is about all times but the vast majority of people will meet God through their individual deaths. Did you realize that the the vast majority of people who get to heaven, the vast majority of people who will stand before God will do so through their own death in their own time rather than some great cataclysmic event. Now, with that, not only is the focus on the end times in this text unhealthy, but it's really unhelpful for us actually applying this text. First of all, There have been people falling away from the church all throughout church history. Every generation has seen people departing from the faith. Every generation has seen people departing from the faith. And at times, in great numbers, there have been many people who have fallen away from the faith. Now, I do believe that there will be a great falling away before the end comes. I believe that that's a biblical idea. right? But even that is subjective to me. And what I mean by that, what I think is a great falling away might not even be anything to God. He might have something completely or much bigger in mind. I'm not the litmus test of what that is. Secondly, the word here for later times is really better understood as a period of time between Christ's first coming and second coming. That's really a better way to look at this. In fact, John MacArthur, who is a dispensational premillennialist, he says, that some, that, that something that was surprised a lot of people, he says that this later times isn't meant for the, simply the end times. It's all of the time from Christ's ascension into heaven until he finally comes back. And, and, and so later times is all of church history, basically the entire age of the church until Christ's return. And what have we witnessed? What has the church witnessed throughout the ages? People, for different reasons, for false uh, teachings or for whatever, have departed from the faith. And this is the urgent message that Paul is giving all of us for all time. Because it's not an issue of timing. It's an issue of the truth. And the truth is this. Some in the church will fall away from the faith. That's the issue. Not about timing, it's the issue that there are people who are among us, there are people who are part of the church, there are people who make a profession of faith who fall away. These are people who go throughout history who look like that they have faith. That is the warning that Paul is giving us. It's not a warning of the nearness of the end times, it is a warning that some people, in spite of of the church being the pillar and the buttress of the truth, that some people just for whatever reason, are going to leave the faith itself. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here that we translate as depart is the Greek word, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, so just bear with me, is apostisontai. Apostisontai, which is the same word we get the word apostate from, or to, to apostatize, or apostasy, which really means just fall away, or in one's faith. This is the warning, Paul is saying, that even though the church is the shining example of truth, that that it is the rock-solid example and and the declarer of the truth and the defender of orthodox doctrine, even though that we stand on our confessions, some people, in spite of this, are going to abandon their faith. They're going to fall from the truth, and they will commit apostasy towards
1: God. That is the urgent warning. Now, why such a dire warning? Well, it's because of the
0: consequences of that. Those who abandon their faith, those who become apostates, are consigned to hell. The 17th century English preacher, William Grenall once wrote, none sink so far into hell as those who come nearest to heaven because they fall from the greatest height. This is why such a warning Because the stakes are just simply too high. Those who depart from the faith face the judgment and the awful and terrible wrath of God.
1: That should break your heart. And you want to know how bad God's wrath is? Because sometimes
0: we downplay that, especially, I think, in Western culture. We downplay the wrath of God because we talk about the love of God so much. We think about this loving, benevolent God all the time. But we forget about His wrath. But you want to know how bad His wrath is? Look at the cross. God poured out His wrath on His own beloved Son to the point where He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
1: Christ suffered unimaginable pain. Not because of what He did, but because of what we did.
0: And make no mistake, if God did not spare his own innocent son, how much will he not spare those who in the end reject him? That is a stern warning because the stakes are just that high. Now, let's be clear about what Paul means when he says depart from the faith. What Paul is not saying is that legitimate, I mean, people who legitimately have been regenerated and have a saving faith somehow have the ability to stop believing and depart from the faith. That's not what he's saying. Right? Because scriptures teach very clearly that those who truly become regenerate, those truly who become born again, those who actually truly have a saving faith in Christ will persevere in their faith. One of my favorite scriptures on this particular subject is John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus has said, himself said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And when it says never perish, it's a double negative. It's like they will know not never. It's, it's emphasizing that it's impossible for those who have faith in Christ to perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand if that wasn't clear enough. And then, if, again, that's not clear enough by itself. Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We have now the double-fisted promise of assurance. And he says, I and the Father are one. The Bible makes it clear that those who are truly converted have assurance that they cannot lose their salvation. And so Paul is not talking about who legitimately believes somehow walk away from Christ. When he talks about faith here, he's not talking about the act of believing. He's talking about the participation in an institution. And Paul Says some will depart from the faith. He's talking about the doctrines of the Christian faith. They will leave the orthodox doctrines of the faith. The faith is referring to the Christian Orthodox faith, the doctrines and teachings that make up what we believe is the essentials of the faith. He's saying people will appear to be following Christ, and, but for some reason, at various times, will reject the very foundational doctrines that are required for us to believe to be Christians. They will walk away from that faith. They will walk away from the truths that they once claimed to believe is what he's saying. These are people who profess to believe in the divinity of Christ and the Trinity and that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That they believed in the virgin birth and and in uh, the, the incarnation. But the reality is they will slip away because what they had at, the, at that time probably was more head knowledge than actual sincere faith. In fact, on that note, look with me really quick to, to verse 3. It's, it, it's almost mentioned in passing, but this is a very telling verse. It's the phrase, those who believe and know the truth. The thing that we need to understand about saving faith is saving faith is both knowledge and sincere belief. The thing that we have to get a, get a handle on is that just having a knowledge of orthodoxy right, doesn't save you. You can have a handle on all the Christian doctrines
1: and you can have great theology and still not be saved. A saving faith is about a
0: full Trust and dependence upon Christ and His finished work on the cross. Saving faith is about rejecting all other means to save you and trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save you. So we can have the creeds and the confessions, which are important, as you know from last week. And you can memorize all the books of the Bible and you can recite all the words of Charles Spurgeon's sermons But without true faith, all you have is knowledge and you are not saved. In fact, Spurgeon himself once wrote that true salvation is not found through mere reception of any creed, however true or spiritual. Mere head notion is not the road to heaven. You must be born again means a great deal more than you must believe certain dogmas. The the study of the Bible cannot save you. You must press beyond this. You must come to the living, personal Christ, or else your acceptance of the soundest creed cannot avail for the salvation of your soul. Salvation lies in Jesus only. Knowledge alone will not get you there. This is something I remind myself over and over again as I've come to fall more and more in love with the doctrines of, of, of God When I think about the attributes of God, I had to look in the mirror and remind myself, those are but a grace that God has given me to know Him better. I'm not saved because I know those things. I'm not saved because somehow I'm, I'm, I'm growing in those things. I'm growing in those things because I've got a legitimate hunger for them now. But on the other hand, you can have a strong, passionate, sincere belief in something, but still miss heaven because the object of your faith is false because you don't truly know the truth. There are a lot of people who think that sincerity of faith is all that matters, but you can have sincerity and faith in a false God, and guess what? You will stand and face the real one true God, and the sincerity of your faith is not going to matter at all. Right? That's the opposite end of the spectrum, by the way. Those people who look down their noses at those who study theology and doctrine, they say, I don't need any creed but Christ. They simply just want Christianity that's filled full of of mystical experiences or a faith that makes them feel better about themselves or an emotionally charged, you know, faith. For them it's about emotions and and feeling some spiritual experience all the time. But the truth is, your faith is only as real as the object on which you put your faith. Authentic faith does require knowing something. It requires knowing about who God is and what God has done in creation. It's about knowing who we are in light of God's glory and seeing how far we fall short. Authentic faith is about knowing what God has done to rescue us and that it's by His grace. And it's about knowing
1: our desperate need for Him and salvation from Him alone.
0: As I've said over and over again, people don't take the medicine unless they know what the diagnosis is. If you're going to be saved by Christ, you must know Him. This is why the doctrines of our faith are so important. This is why theology does matter. This is why creeds and confessions are helpful. Without knowledge, a person is destined to depart from the faith. Without knowledge. True, sincere belief, people are destined to fall away from the faith. Real faith is both knowing and believing. And with that being said, there are some who who will, in spite of the church's best efforts, depart from the faith. And
1: the foundation of what he's getting at is the truth that not everyone who professes faith in Christ is truly saved. And, and that bears repeating. Not everyone who professes faith in Christ, is truly saved. Not
0: everyone who joins the church is born again. Not everyone who reads the Bible and prays and comes to all the church functions is saved. Not everyone who makes an emotional walk down an aisle at one point in their life at an invitation is saved. There are people who are in the church all around the world who are deceived. They're false converts. They appear to be believers. They made a confession of faith. They might even observe the Lord's table, maybe even been baptized. They're even, maybe even
1: leadership, maybe even in the pulpit. But they're not of Christ. Paul says that they depart from the faith. You see, to depart from somewhere means you had to be
0: standing somewhere. There are people in the church, they talk the talk, and maybe even appeared to walk the walk. But in the end, they fell away because they weren't true believers. And this, by the way, is the thrust that, that the Apostle John was getting at in his letter, his first letter, um, one John two nineteen. Hear his words. I want you to hear what he's saying here. They went out
1: from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. It's very clear.
0: John said that some fell away from faith because they were not really of the faith. Because because if they were of the faith, they would have never left. Because those who truly believe endure to the end. The truth is that a number of self-deceived false converts Inhabit the church. And unfortunately, it's the church's fault, especially here in our country, because of the
1: watered down, the watered down, sugar-coated gospel. In fact, remember, Jesus gave this warning.
0: And I'm going to tell you as a pastor, if there is a passage of scripture that just that weighs heavy on me at nighttime and just at different points in my life, it's this one here, it's Matthew chapter seven, verses. 21 through 23, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If there is a passage of Scripture that ought to make you sit up and Take a deep breath. That is it. And as a preacher, as a pastor, this is why I preach the gospel every Sunday. These people that Jesus referred to think that they are religious. Notice they say, Lord, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord, emphasis, right? Notice they say, we do religious activities. We cast out demons in your name. We do mighty works in your name. And he says, that doesn't matter to me. I don't even know who you are. These are people in the church who were not saved. These are people who profess faith in Christ who don't actually know Him. And this is something that men in our country just want to push back on. I, in fact, I once heard a mother, and I understand her motivation. I do. But she said, she told me that, um, you know, she was talking about her, her adult son, who, by the way, is a professing, avowed atheist in this moment. And she says, but it didn't matter. I know he's saved. What? She says, well, well, well." he's just wandering away from the faith. I said, how do you gamble that way? Well, because I know. I know that he's saved because one time he was at church and he said he wanted to invite Jesus into his heart and he prayed the prayer. And so that I know he's saved. He's
1: just, you know, he's just a carnal Christian right now. What are you talking about? Now, as a parent, I want you to realize, I don't
0: look down on this person for where they're coming from emotionally. As a parent, right, I desire greatly to have assurance of my children's salvation. But the doctrine of carnal Christianity, or true believers somehow who can just have faith in Christ one moment, but then never actually like, follow Christ, that is not a biblical doctrine at all. And unfortunately, this young man, until we see other evidence of his faith, I would have to say, as a pastor, I don't think he's a believer. There's no evidence of it. He's not saved. He's giving clear evidence that he's not. You see, the evidence of our faith is not a one-time, long-ago, off in the distance profession of faith. It's an ongoing trust in Christ. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. When he said believe, this was it was present tense imperative active meaning that you believe and keep believing and keep believing. It's an ongoing thing. True belief continues on. It's an ongoing faith in Christ that produces fruit in our lives, which by the way, is what, Paul, what Jesus was dealing with in Mark chapter 4. In the parable of the sower, he said, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he... Sowed Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where it had not much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since, its depth, since it had no depth of soil. And then when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain. Growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixty fold and a hundredfold, and then he said, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear and then Jesus not leaving us to guess what he 's talking about, he explains the parable in great detail, and he says, "Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand the other, all other parables? The sower sows the word. this is the truth right here that somebody goes and preaches the gospel that's the word. and there are those along The path where the Word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word that is sown in them. Why? Because because their hearts are hardened to the gospel. And immediately they hear it and they reject it. It's just gone. And then there's the ones sown on rocky ground. The one who, when when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root within themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises... On account of the word, immediately they fall away or depart from the faith. And then others are sown among the thorns, and they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of the things of other things enter in and choke out and proves unfruitful. Because they love the world and not really love God. But those who who, but those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and a hundredfold. Jesus says, those who truly believe bear fruit. In fact, He says, you will know them by what? By their fruit. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be the church that God is calling us to be, right, this is a truth that we need to just simply come to terms with. We need to set aside preconceived ideas. We need to set aside even our emotions and maybe even what we were taught before. I mean, I know that this was one of those things I had to set aside because it was really easy for me to just say, hey, you just pray this prayer and you're in like that and you got your, your fire insurance taken care of and it don't matter what happens next. But we must acknowledge that there are those who will make a profession of faith and receive the gospel with great joy, but eventually will fall away, not bearing any fruit, proving that they were really not ever of the faith. Not everyone who makes a profession of faith is saved. Now let's look again at, the, at the verse 1. Paul says, "Not every Now that the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and I think this is really enlightening for us because what we need to understand is Paul is not saying that people who fall away, they're not just giving up on Christianity altogether, right? They're not just walking away into some, into some heresy, right? They're not just, just simply becoming atheists. I mean, there's some of that that do that, but there are a lot of people who are supposedly of the faith fall into something else. They don't fall into like Hinduism or, or Buddhism or, or, or Islam, right? They fall for a false teaching that appears to be Christian. That's been the thing that has been really a, uh, an issue that the church has dealt with. The, the, the things like Islam, are, are it's easy to say, that is not Christianity. Right? Those who practice witchcraft it's easy to say, that is not Christian. But these people are falling for what seems to be a legitimate Christian faith. These people are walking away Into something that they think is Christian, but it's pseudo Christian. And the origins of these teachings, if you see from the text here, they are demonic in origin, satanic. And the thing is, what we have to realize is how does Satan typically work against Christians? Satan doesn't work typically in
1: overt fashions, right? Satan is always like little by little. Subtly, deceitfully, that's okay. You'll be all right. right. That's not what that really means.
0: He doesn't come to us blatantly calling us to blaspheme God right, or practice animal sacrifice or witchcraft. He comes to us with subtle little twists of the truth, like the Garden of Eden. Right. He came by asking a question. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat
1: of the trees in the garden? Did you know that you could be like God? Right? You're not going to die. That's what he said. Right? He didn't say, hey, come over here and worship me. No.
0: He didn't say, hey, why don't you curse God to your face and see what happens. No. He just took the truth and just twisted on it a little bit. It's the same thing when he, when, when, when he came to tempt Jesus Christ. How did he tempt Jesus in the wilderness? By reciting Scripture to him. Twisting the scriptures to make it mean what it doesn't mean. And Jesus was able to put him in his place. He's the insidious one. That's the nature of his teaching. And oftentimes it mimics the truth. And sometimes very closely. For example, the Bible says, I want you to hear me. The Bible says, pray for anything in Jesus' name and you'll have it. It's what it says. John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Right? Right? John 16, 23 says, In that day you will ask for nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's what it says. And people read that and they say, well, wow, wow. So the Bible's telling me I should pray for a full bank account, and he'll give it to me. Then I should pray that I get the job of my dreams, and he's got to give it to me. You should pray that God's going to heal you no matter what happens, because, you know, he said he has to give it to me. Because the Bible promises if you ask anything in Jesus' name, He'll give it to you. That's what the Bible says. Right? And if you don't receive it, then something wrong with you. You must not have enough faith then. You really didn't believe it. You didn't really have enough sincere faith to believe it. Which obviously is a false teaching, right? Jesus isn't saying that I will give you all your materialistic wants. What He's saying in context is I'm going to give you everything that you ask for, that you need for the ministry to do the work I'm calling you to do. You're going to have what you need, but not not everything you want. The problem with the prosperity gospel is there are just too many people who simply don't know enough about their Bibles
1: that false teachers can take scriptures like this and twist them around to suit their own agenda. It's like right now the movement of
0: the the LGBT community, they say something very, very popular argument is, well, Christ never said anything at all about homosexuality. Read the Scriptures. Christ never said a word about homosexuality. And that's true. He didn't say anything specifically. He didn't say the word. He didn't say it towards that. But He did address the issue when He addressed the issue of marriage. And He made it clear that marriage is between a man and a woman. Number two, because God is the author of Scripture and Jesus is God, ultimately all of the Scripture is the Word of Christ. Right? And He did address it in, in, there in other t- places. But let's just take that off the table and say, number three, Jesus, while on earth, never said anything about pedophilia or bestiality or incest. But no one's making that argument to promote those behaviors because we all know that those are sinful and wrong. You see, the nature of false teaching is to intentionally be deceptive. That's, you know, they are they're meant to appear to, to, to be Christian doctrines. And they are effective for those who know little about their faith and those who are not truly born again. Paul continues and says, Some depart from the faith, devoting themselves to the deceitfulness of, of the spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who, uh, whose consciences are seared. Paul in this text gives us the mechanism how many people fall away, and that is through false teachers. It's through the work of those false teachers. And again, I want you to understand, these people aren't just blatantly false. It's not like, hey... You know, somebody walks up in here in a black suit with an inverted pentagram and horns on his head and starts preaching, right? That's not how how it works. Many false teachers appear to be true Christians, even appearing to be orthodox in their their statements of faith. But when you hear what they actually preach and, and read the books that they have written, you find out that's not at all what they really believe. And I want you to notice that Paul says that these teachers are insincere. And the Greek word that he uses here for insincere actually is a word that we translate for hypocrisy. And and actually, the root of this meaning of this word is a mask. And it was used to people who would would act in plays. It was a play actor. It's an apt analogy for false teachers. They pretend to be the real thing, but simply, they are false versions of the truth. Which, by the way, fits Satan's motive, right? Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. The reason people, why people fall for these false teachers is because, because there seems to be an element of truth in them. And these people look like they might be the genuine article, but they, but they teach, what they teach comes from the pit of hell. And notice it says that their consciences are seared. Now, this is a, a very simple reference. It's the idea of taking a hot piece of iron and sticking it to a wound, either to cauterize a wound or brand someone. And and one uh, commentary said, it's like having your spiritual nerves deadened. The idea simply is this, is that they don't even realize that they're doing wrong anymore. They're so hardened, leading to the mistaken belief that they're actually teaching the truth. False teachers are very dangerous because they are the tool of the enemy. But I have to say, we can't put just the blame on the false teachers themselves, though. Because oftentimes false teachers are only giving to people what they really want. And in, in Paul's next letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this He says, For the time is coming, kind of like later times, time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers who to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into, into myths. Again, those who are, who are false believers are complicit. They will seek out false teachers and leaders who will confirm for them their biases. Right? Things like, you know, homosexuality isn't really a sin. Right? Or a loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell. Or God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. You know. God's sovereignty is limited by your free will. or, Or the purpose of your relationship with God is that you can live a fulfilled, happy life. That's the purpose of why God saved you, rather than the glory of God. Those who fall away from the faith are led away by false teachers. And many willingly are led away. Now again... To the text it says, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sincere, or, I mean, consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What we need to see is, is the importance of knowing Scripture is because the nature of of these false teachings. These false teachings typically are rooted in one of four categories. Number one, false teachers develop um, their teachings by adding to scripture. That's one of the very common ways that false teachers work. Like the, like the prohibition of marriage here, that is an addition, right? That, that, that does not exist actually in the text. It's not found in the Bible that you should not marry. Right? Even though Paul does encourage singleness for those who can bear that burden, right, the Bible over and over again talks about how marriage is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing. Right? That it is God-ordained, and it is also, by the way, a picture of Christ's relationship with the church and a picture of the gospel. The teaching is an addition to the Scripture. And a number of false uh, teachers and teachings and teaching groups add to the Scriptures. Some even write whole books right, and add to them. I mean, some entire denominations add to them, like Scripture itself is not enough. You need to have tradition and you need to have you know the, uh, the, the interpretation of the Pope. But the Word of God makes it clear that Scripture alone are, is, is breathed out by Him, or theanustas. False teachers add to the Scriptures, but they also some will twist the Scriptures. They'll take the words that are there and twist them around, like the requirement to abstain from foods. They will take the text out of context to fit their agenda. Right? I actually once talked to someone who said, he was listening to some YouTube uh, uh, theologian that said, um, now that you're in Christ, you're no longer a sinner. You don't have a sin nature anymore. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I, I don't sin anymore. I'm like, it's me you're talking to. You understand that, right? I know who you are. No, I don't sin anymore. It's, it, it's, it's proven. Let's say how, how do you prove that? Well, he offers up 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17, um, which, uh, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I try to point that out to him, saying that that does not mean that you don't have sin in your life or that you don't have a sin nature. What that's saying is you, now that you have faith, now that Christ has come into your life, that you have now been born again. You are radically different. You have a new radical nature you didn't have before. This has nothing to do with you're not sinning. And he argued with me to the where he got upset, and I tried to love on him, but he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. But John says right, that if we say that we do not have sin, we're not of the truth. It's just as simple as that. Many people will take scriptures out of context, and twist it around to make it mean what they want it to mean. The third thing they do is they omit Scriptures by leaving things out. Right? The thing about abstaining from certain foods right, is just an, a blatant omission to what Christ has said Himself. What did He say? That basically declared all foods are clean. Remember He said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that, that, makes him, that defiles him is what comes out. Right? And then there was the whole issue with Peter and his trance, where, he, where God said, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, don't call unclean what, what I've called clean. It's a twisting of the Scripture. But, but that's a relative minor issue of that. There's, again, the Marcion uh, heresy. Again, as we talked about, it, Marcion took chunks of the Scripture and just threw them out because he didn't like it. And you would think that that would be something that people wouldn't do today, but there is actually a megachurch pastor today who is very, very prominent, who is like one of the white one of one of the most one of the best-selling authors, and who has a big church with a lot of different satellite um, uh, churches that are attached to it. And he said this: he says, "We Christians in America today need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament." That's exactly what he said. He said, "We need to unhitch our theology from the Old Testament because." The law, none of that has anything to do with us. And I'm like, you can't even understand the gospel without the Old Testament. What are you talking about? But, again, the whole point is to make Christianity more palatable so people don't get offended by the language. right? So false teachers will omit some scriptures. And then, number four, they will pervert God's created order. Like the forbidding of marriage. This was God's created divine order. right? Or how about the redefining of marriage? A complete perversion of God's created order. Or how about this whole confusion of gender? Right? That God had created and ordained to be a certain way. It's very clear in black and white. Or how about even the nature of reality itself, right? Things that are good are called bad, and things that are bad are called good, and nobody has any sense of the truth because your truth is not my truth, and my truth is not your truth, and all truth is relative, right? Right? By the way, do you know why it is that false teachers in the culture seek to distort God's created order?
1: It's because God's created order testifies to His nature and His character. Paul in Romans chapter
0: 1 just absolutely makes that clear. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, hold down, deny the truth. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the reality is, is if I didn't already know that this was reflective of all of mankind all in the beginning, I would say that they wrote this about us today, right? The created order bears witness to God's nature and character. In fact, notice Paul takes a moment to talk about the created order and says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So what Paul is saying is that marriage is a good thing, because God created
1: it. Right? Food is good. Some people really appreciate it more than others. Right? And all the things that God created for us to use and to steward,
0: right? we should accept them as gracious gifts from God and receive them with gratitude in our hearts and our use of these things are made holy by the word of God and through prayer. You see, we as Christians don't realize but through our walk with Christ and our prayer life and our study of the word sanctify the ordinary things that God has given us and suddenly became supernatural instruments that we use to worship God. Do you ever think about that that you Worship the creator when you eat the food that he's provided for you to, to, to sustain your life. Do you know that you you know, you
1: worship the God that created you when you go out and you love someone that he created in his own image? Do you
0: realize that you worship God in your marriage when you give? sacrificially, when husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, and when wives submit themselves as unto Christ. The ordinary things that God has created for us are a means of worship, and all of those things are consecrated and made holy by our walk with Him. Now, I could spend a whole other Sunday on that one topic alone, but
1: it's hot. And so I'll get get on with it. So what do we do with this? What do we do now in light
0: of this truth? I don't think this is news for most of us. I think we all know that there have been false teachers from the beginning, that there are false teachings that appear to be Christian that really, you know, are subtle, and that there are people who claim to be Christians who just simply aren't. That's not news to us. But what do we do with this? How do we live in light of this? Well, there's a couple of things. There's a lot, but let me just give you a couple of things. The first thing I think we need to do is just recognize... And for those who like, want to drag their feet on this, you just need to recognize and admit the truth about false believers, false doctrines, and false teachers. They exist, right? Not every person who says, I'm a minister of the gospel, is a, a true, qualified, God-called preacher. And not everyone who says, not every doctrine that appears to be Christian is. You have to test all those things by the scriptures. Right? And not every person who says I love Jesus. Actually knows who Jesus is. It's just a truth we have to accept. And by the way, in that that's why we must continually preach the gospel. That's why I always preach the gospel on Sunday. That's why we sing the songs that we sing that profess the gospel, hoping that somehow, some way, that finally, for those who don't believe, will hear it and actually repent and believe. And I want you to know a very common thing that happens in the Christian church is people who go to church for years. That finally, the gospel hits them. They go. I just now was born again. I just now came to faith. I've heard many people say to me, you know, you know, when I was a kid, I made a profession of faith, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I finally came to terms with my sin, and then I finally truly was born again. This is why we, we continually come back to the most important subject in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. right? And we must recognize the fact is that we can't wink our eye at at false teachers and say, it's not a big deal. The stakes are too high. People are going to hell because of it. And I, and I say that is because we're surrounded by false teaching in our community. There are people that we know and love and have great respect for. they are members of a, of, of, of a church that is, that is patently unchristian. And they're some of the nicest people, most loving people, giving people we know. But guess what? We can't just just ignore the fact that all of them are walking towards the wrath of God. We must be willing to tell them the truth. Which leads me to the next thing. We need then, with a subject like this, we need to walk in grace and truth. We need to walk in both grace and truth. Jesus came into the world full of both of those things. In fact, John says, right... And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is an area where we need to be Christ-like. We need to be full of both of those qualities of grace
1: and truth, which means we need to be loving. That's the grace part. We need to be loving, and I want you to know, like
0: sometimes that's hard. It's hard for me. Sometimes I just get so busy and i got so many things to do and so many things aren't going the way that I want them to and so many people just get under my skin where I'm not really very loving. I just want to just, you know, tell them like it is or just be forceful and rude. It, it, it does happen, right? Yeah. It really happens with customer service reps that don't want to listen, but that's a different story. But the fact of the matter is, is when it comes to these issues, we need to be very loving and patient towards other people and one of the things I've realized is because like once I discovered that there are a lot of false teachers out there, and a lot of them are very popular, when I discovered that I thought it was my job to run around telling everybody, don't listen to them, don't listen to them, don't talk, don't listen to them, don't watch them, don't listen to them, right? What I've realized is I listened to a lot of those people as a young Christian and I outgrew that because my understanding in the faith grew. And so what I realized is I need to be very graceful and that when, if they ask me, do you listen to them? I'll say no. And here's the reasons why. But I need to allow people to grow up and be immature in their faith because sometimes people are just at a season where they're not grown up yet and they just need to go through those things. But at the same time, I need to tell them the truth. I need to let people know the truth. I can't shy away from that. I can't be in that position where, man, gosh, they just look so happy in their ignorance, but they're running right off into hell. I just don't want to bother with that. No, I have to tell them the truth but this is where we have to walk in that balance and find wisdom, where we lovingly tell people the truth. Because guess what? Real love tells the truth, right? Real love tells the truth. But we got to do so lovingly. And I want you to know, as a Christian, that's going to be the balance that we struggle with. This is the part where we have to figure out. This is where we need grace ourselves and say, Lord, I need you to help me and aid me. By the way, I can't even do this without you. right? We tell the truth in love by the power of the Holy Spirit guiding and leading us and strengthening us and our dependence upon Him. And I think that's the thing that we need to really hold on to. Grace and truth and how we deal with false teaching and false converts. And sometimes you have to t- tell people straight, brother, I don't think that you actually know who Christ
1: is. Now, with that being said, Oftentimes I find with a subject like this that there's a
0: problem that I leave unaddressed because I'm not thinking in those terms because I'm focused on the subject matter. Sometimes I'll preach on a subject like this and realize, or or fail to realize, hey, I just left some people really doubting where they are with God, which is not what I want to do, right? And so what I want you to realize is, is that if a message like this pierces your conscience and causes you to ask the question, am I really walking with God and saved? I want you to know that's actually a healthy response to a warning in the Scriptures. It's a healthy response to ask the question, Did I, have I really truly met Christ? And the reason for that is because Paul invites us all the time to examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith. Because I want to tell you, if you never ever wonder, if your sin never causes you to go, man, whew, am I even saved? Because that was pretty bad if your sin never causes you to be grieved and at least ask the question at some point, then maybe you need to really examine yourself. Now, with that being said, I don't want you walking out of here with no hope because here's what the hope is. And I'm going to tell you what the hope is this.
1: If you repent and believe the gospel, you're saved. And the evidence of that salvation is that you will continue and
0: persist and walk in that salvation from now on. In fact, let me just share with you really quickly the gospel, and then we'll get out of here. The gospel is this. God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is not Him. He is the only uncreated thing. He is holy, righteous, sovereign, and just. And He created us as the crowning achievement of all of His creation, and we were created in His image to have a relationship with Him, special. There's nothing in creation that's like us. All the world wants to tell you that humanity is the pariah of the universe, and that there's nothing special about humanity. That's a lie! All of humanity was created in the image of God. That's why we should respect other people because they're created in God's image. But the problem that we face is the relationship we were created for with God was severed because of sin. Sin entered the world through Adam and we inherited his sin nature, but we also participate willingly. We sin because we want to sin. That's who we were. And we were in rebellion to God because we hated Him. That's who we were by our very nature and our own decisions. But in that then, we were then the objects of God's wrath, destined to be punished for eternity. And the problem is, is once we understand that, there's nothing we can do to fix it. We can't save ourselves. You can't rescue enough kittens. You can't feed enough homeless people. You can't love enough, be compassionate enough, be sincere enough. There's nothing you can do. The Bible says our very best efforts are but trash before God which means then we are truly helpless and hopeless with nothing of our own to save ourselves. Then we finally see what we need, is we need God to save us. And God did. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to do all the things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, securing for us a righteousness that we need to stand in the presence of God. And then He shed His blood making payment for our sins so that we are no longer covered in our sins, but clothed in the robes, the righteous robes of Christ. And that is ours, not by what we do, but by faith and faith alone in Christ Jesus. Through faith, we are given righteousness and our sins are forgiven and granted a status of rightness with God and are adopted into His family and given a hope of a promise to be with Him forever and ever in an eternal life. And that Jesus died to secure that and rose again, proving that He is what He claimed to be. And He can do what He promised to do. And He promised for all of those who repent and believe the gospel that they will be saved. And that is my call. My invitation, week after week, month after month, day after day, is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Abandon anything that you might hope in. In fact, Paul Washer in a video said, he's a... A missionary and a ministry. he said, I have been to the mountains of Peru. I've been to the jungles. I have created orphanages. I have started churches. I have fed the homeless. I have bled with those who are dying. I have been all over the world in service to Christ. And none of that, none of that is the reason why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven in spite of all of that. The only reason why I can gain entrance into heaven is by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.